Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any of the funds, services, or products or to adopt any investment strategy. Our guest this week is Ted Seidlitz. Ted is the creator and host of the investment podcast Capital Allocators, which he launched in 2017 and reached more than 5 million downloads by January 2021. He recently published his second book, Capital Allocators, How the World's Elite Money Managers Lead and Invest. Before Capital Allocators, Ted was the founder, president, and co-chief investment officer of Protege Partners. He started his career in 1992 under the mentorship of endowment legend David Swanson, who changed the way U.S. endowments were allocating capital in the 1980s and 1990s. That made a bet against Warren Buffett in 2007, which serves as a perfect real case study to explore mental process, thinking in probabilities, and assessing behavioral biases. We hope you enjoy it. Ted, thank you very much for joining us in the Value Perspective podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Juan, Nick, thanks so much for having me. Um, maybe, maybe to begin with, it would be a, a nice idea to uh, hear a little bit about your background for those that do not know you very well on this side of the Atlantic, um, all the way from how you started your career in finance under uh, David Swenson's um, uh, tutelage, and then like having your own company, and also then uh, launching a podcast as a hobby that then turned out to be one of the most successful podcasts in finance with more than 4 million downloads, and writing a book about all the things that you have learned throughout this journey over the last two or three years. Well, Juan, you just did a fantastic job summing it up. So I'm happy to take you wherever you want to go. Uh, but, you know, I think I've been investing for you know, close to 30 years now from right out of college. I was fortunate that my very first job, I was a Yale undergrad and I joined the Yale Investments Office under Dave Swenson back in 1992. And he had been there for a number of years, about seven at the time. So the portfolio really took shape in the image that everyone became to know some years later when he wrote his book. But it was this incredible period of execution from, I was there from 92 to 97. And, and that was my formative education in all of investing. I didn't know a whole lot about stocks or bonds or anything when I first went to work there. I used to joke that I learned what a hedge fund was the same day I learned what a stock was. <laughs> so I stayed for five years. I went to business school after that. And I thought I wanted to invest directly. I, I had relationships with this incredible group of managers that Yale had employed. And I went to work with one of them over my summer and another one when I graduated and another one when that didn't work out. And after a couple of iterations, I, I started thinking that maybe direct investing wasn't quite for me. And I decided to go back to investing in managers. And at that point in time, David had written his book. And so I had this obscure background when I went to business school. No one had ever heard of an endowment or nobody knew what an endowment did. And some years later, people were just calling me left and right for jobs because the fund of funds world was taking off and endowments were opening new investment offices. And I thought at that time, well, if everyone wants my background, I might as well try to find a way to monetize it. <laughs> and through a couple of friends, I had met someone who wanted to start an asset management business, really a hedge fund of funds business and put me together with the person who became my partner. And we started Protege Partners back in 2002. And it was a pretty unique duck. It was investing in hedge funds, really early stage hedge funds and seeding new funds. And the early stage piece was something I was very familiar with from Yale. The seeding was new to me and I really liked it because you were that much closer to being both partners with the managers and closer to the exposure of the underlying assets. 
So that was something I had done in those couple of years when I was doing direct investing and wanted to be part of that. And we caught this tidal wave of capital that was hitting hedge funds, you know, starting right then in 2002. So the business was great too. We did it, uh, had a really nice run for a long time. It was tougher after the financial crisis, but we still did quite well. And I left in 2015, not being sure what I wanted to do. I just knew I didn't want to keep focusing only on hedge funds. And I had a few projects here and there, and the podcast came out of that. And, uh, here we are a couple of years later, and it's become the core of kind of a mini ecosystem of activities that I'm doing today. And you just launched a book called Capital Locators, same name as the podcast, and it kind of takes you through the journey, your, your own journey of launching up a podcast and doing all of these series of uh, interviews with capital allocators. Yeah, what happened was after probably 30 or 40 episodes, I've now done a little over 200, well, I, I had just forgotten those little lessons that I was learning along the way. And they're all little lessons, right? I've been in the business for a long time. I kind of know the basics and, and share some of the basics for people who don't know. But every single conversation, there was some beautiful little gem and I just couldn't remember them. And so I started trying to curate it through quotes. I had a few interns that would go listen to the episodes and tell me what they thought the best quotes were. And I'd post those on social media. And then I got to the point where I was ready to start deploying my own money, just investing it. And I wanted to use some of the lessons that I had learned from the podcast to improve how I had done it in the past. The first area of that was decision-making. Hmm. So when I was investing for 20 years, I was never privy to, let's call it modern decision-making theory or applied behavioral finance. So we know what behavioral finance is, where everyone's aware of what behavioral biases are, but it's only the last couple of years that I had been exposed to people like Annie Duke and Daniel Kahneman wrote his book and Michael Mobison's always done great research on this, about how can you actually get a little bit better because you're not going to lose your biases. How can you get a little bit better in making decisions? And I'd had five or six conversations on the podcast all in and around that subject matter. And I just wanted to go back and force myself to go back and listen to it and distill those lessons. And that became a chapter on decision-making. And as I did that, I started to think, you know, there's a few other disciplines here that I really was always curious about because I knew I wasn't learning them in my investing career. And most notably, things like leadership and management. We are known in this industry for managing money, not for managing people. Yeah. Most other businesses are much more focused on managing people. And so in and around that, I was always a fascination of mine. So I wanted to talk to some people and did it on the podcast who knew a lot more about those subjects. And I wrote those up. And each of these, there's nothing earth shattering in this. This is all, when, when someone tells you about a body of knowledge, generally speaking, you want to nod your head and say, oh yeah, I kind of knew that, but it's nice to see it in one place. And that's what this is. It's not the definitive leadership book, you know, go read Bob Iger's book or something like that for that. But even in that, you could say, huh, what were the key lessons in his book? And I distilled that. And that became the first section of the book. What I knew was that no matter how I was going to try to curate like a chapter of a book, because every conversation had these little gems of wisdom, I was never going to be able to take those and put them all into a written book. So I always knew there was going to be a section, which is the last section I call nuggets of wisdom, that are these incredible quotes. Uh, and originally, the book was just those two parts. There were just too many quotes in it to make it read well. So I took that out and turned it into an investment framework section. And really, the thought is, Dave Swenson's book is still the Bible on how institutional chief investment officers go through the process of investing. What isn't quite in his book, because it's not what he wrote about, is how do they actually do it? Hmm. So once you have your policy portfolio in place, and I wrote a little bit about how that's evolved, but once that's in place, how do you go find money managers? What work do you do? How do you construct the portfolios? How do you monitor them after the fact? And a lot of that is common for me, having you know been in the business for a while. And one of the things that surprised me the most was I put in the book as part of the interviewing chapter, a sample questionnaire for if you're going to prepare to meet with a long short equity manager, what, what's the set of things that you want to know? And I made this thing probably 15 years ago, maybe longer, but it never changed in all the years I was at probably 20 years ago. In all the years I was a protege, we never changed this 
this checklist. And so I put it in the book and a number of people said, wow, that was, that's great to have. So there are all these little things that, you know, came from my experience and came from all the lessons. I just wanted to take the opportunity to share them. So I could have, for me, even have this book on my desk. So I didn't have to go into my file and say, oh, where was that checklist? Oh, great. It's here in the book. It's a, it's a fascinating read. I, I, I went through it through, through the weekend very fast. I highlighted, I, I made so many highlights that the whole point of highlighting kind of lost sense. Um, it's very interesting to hear um, how the book came about uh, around the topic of decision-making, because for us, we started exploring decision-making after we had a session with Annie Duke for the blog that we run, The Value Perspective. And it was not meant to be a podcast session, but that interview or that session with her was so rich in everything that she said, how to tackle, uh, um, how to approach decision-making or think about decision-making from uh, so many different angles that that's how this podcast came about. And, and, and so that leads me to, uh, to my first question, which is we, we, you, you had like this uh, very unique experience 15 years ago, almost 15 years ago. And I, we know that you have uh, told this story many, many times through many different channels, but maybe for the people that they don't really know it on this side of Atlantic, um, you decided to take on a challenge against Warren Buffett because I think to, to use one word that you've used before, he made a cheeky comment that you thought that needed to be challenged. And, and that was, it received, of course, a lot of publicity. And that seemed to be like a, a wonderful experience in, in its own. But for us, exploring the decision-making, it, it, it serves itself as a, as, as a very good um, case study to understand decision-making from different angles. So, adopting probabilistic thinking and behavioral biases and thinking about timing. And, and so in the context of decision-making, one of the things that you've said is that you, you, you sat down with your partners and came out with an estimation of the probability of winning the bet. And, and it was a very unique number. It was 85%, I think, that you, you mentioned that in your book. And then you actually asked Buffett and his probabilities of winning the bet were 60%. So can you tell us a little bit about the background of the bet and how you came up with that number and thinking about the odds and, and the, all that came about? Yeah, I'm happy to. Let's frame all of this as I look today back at this. And as we'll talk about, this was a losing bet from my perspective. I put this in the bucket of good process, bad outcome. And we can come back to all the reasons why, but I believe that uh, today after doing a whole bunch of work on it. So at the time, this bet was effectively hedge funds against the S&P 500. The way we implemented it was he picked the Vanguard S&P 500 index fund. We picked a portfolio of five hedge fund of funds. And we were going to measure the returns of those from January 1st, 2008 for 10 years to the end of 2017 with the proceeds going to charity, uh, the winner's choice of charity. We actually split the future value of a million dollars in proceeds. So we each put $320,000 into an account that would accrue with the zero coupon bond to a million dollars 10 years out. And that was how we funded it. So that was the bet. Uh, Carol Loomis, who wrote it up in a, a wonderful article for Fortune Magazine, and she's just an amazing journalist to get everything right, uh, asked each of us what we thought the probability of success was. And we said 85%. And we'll come back to Warren's. The thought at the time was the following. Hedge funds were going to do their own thing. They're relatively uncorrelated to the market. They try to generate equity-like returns. So let's think 6 to 8% a year in a way that's uncorrelated. And we think that that will continue. Now, back then, the return has been, had been higher. Since then, it's been lower. But let's, let's assume we're going to get to 6 to 8% or 6 to 8% independent of what happens in the markets. The question really is, what will the S&P 500 do? And given that there is correlation, but the S&P 500 has much more market exposure, you could imagine that if you had a strong period for the market over those 10 years, the market would probably win. If you had a particularly weak period for the market, the market would probably lose. And if it was sort of historically average, then it's sort of a fair bet and you'd see what happened. Well, the big part of the reason why I made the bet was when we made it in 2007, the, the S&P 500 was trading at historically high valuations. And let's keep in mind, interest rates, short-term interest rates were about 4%. So you didn't have the argument that valuations were high because interest rates were low that you could make today. Yeah. So you could look at that and say, if you looked at all the historical data, you would find 
that the S&P 500 was likely to have a very weak 10-year performance. In fact, from the starting valuation, it would have told you you would have been the lowest decile of future returns, probabilistically. 85% ended up being an interesting number. So we made that up out of thin air. But if you looked back 10 years later, so the S&P ended up being up 7 or 8% a year, despite being down in the financial crisis the first year. So it went down, Fed came in, and the S&P compounded at about 17% a year from March 09 through the end of the bet. If you ask the question at the end of those 10 years, based on history, what was the probability that the S&P starting at its starting valuation would have ended up at about 7% a year? The answer was 15%. So if we were handicapping just the S&P, it, it was actually about right. Yeah. Um, but that was only half the bet, right? The other half the bet was what were hedge funds going to do? And if I looked back at that, I would say things happened that I couldn't have anticipated. And we probably had put too high of a probability of winning the bet just based on an assessment of the S&P, which probabilistically looked about right. Um, but the hedge funds didn't quite do their part either. And so maybe that was a little bit aggressive. But if I were back in 2007, making that probability assessment in the same set of conditions, maybe I would have said 75%, but it still would have been a very high uh, outcome. So that was our side of the bet. Um, can I ask you something? So I think that you ask Warren Buffett his pro. Oh no, because Car you said Carl Loomis asked both sides what the probabilities were, uh, uh, estimates were, and he said 60%. Why do you think that, from his perspective, he's looking at the same S&P valuation back in 2007, and he still thinks that he's going to win at 60%? Or how how he arrives at that 60%? I I understand that he never explained where the number came, but what do you think was his thinking back at the time? So rather than speculate on that, let me, let me take it from a different perspective, because I did talk to Warren, it's probably three or four years ago now, in trying to work on my own decision-making and say, asked him that question, what was he thinking at the time? The interesting part about it is if you read anything from the end of the bet, so if you read his annual letter, which would have been the 2000 and at the end of 2016, the year before the bet, he, he wrote all about this, everything he said about it at the time, you would have thought that he thought he had 100% chance of winning. Okay. I would argue that he was suffering from some significant hindsight bias at that point in time. <laughs> um, so I did ask him the question. I called him one day and said, hey, you would, I don't know if you remember this, but you had said you thought it was going to be 60%. Was it because of the valuation? And he was like, yeah, I'm not really sure. Maybe some of that. I just wasn't that sure. I don't know that much about hedge funds. I just kind of thought the fees were high. So he had a very simplistic way of looking at it, which is what I was trying to call him on. He's absolutely right that fees are high. But his argument about the what he called the got rocks and the had rocks about fees being high and so the average investor loses, that's only true in a confined market where the participants collectively make up the market return and therefore you pay fees. That's a mathematical tautology if that's the case. The problem with using that against hedge funds is that you're investing in two different opportunity sets. And so it's probably more likely that the relative returns of the opportunity sets will matter more than the degree of fees. And in fact, that played out in the bet as well. So to give you one example, he happened to pick the S&P 500. In those 10 years, the performance difference between the S&P 500 and international equity markets was so wide that if he had picked the Morgan Stanley World Index, the bet would have been about a wash. <laughs> wow. You said, you said something in there that I thought was you know, right at the start of this, which was absolutely fascinating. And this is slightly a kind of mantra for people on our team, which is process over outcome. So, you know, we have this thing where we ask people who are potentially looking to come and work on our team. This is a terrible giveaway for anyone who ever reads this podcast. Let's see how the readership goes. But, you know, if I buy a stock and 12 months later, it's gone to zero, did I do the right thing or the wrong thing? And, you know, the this is a very strong temptation to say you must have done the wrong thing, but the truth is you don't, you don't know. Because what I want to know is if I did that 100 times, would I make money 55 because I'm a legend yeah. if that happens? Yeah. So this probabilistic thinking is one of those things that's quite easy to talk about, but hard to get behind. But we were thinking about, you know, in terms of a structuring investment process, trying to build in steps where at every step you're trying to be the 55%, not the 45 
and over time you're compounding and there's this kind of it's the you know world of marginal gains as people talk about it now and and perhaps we come on to talk a little bit about what you think are the the good steps in structuring a process and how you how you do that but one of the things i'm really interested in we're really interested in is what about in situations where the bet doesn't lend itself to that and this was perhaps an, a situation a bit like that where on average if you make that bet 50 times you're going to win but because you made it once you didn't and if we think about other situations in life you know people who run very concentrated portfolios let's say or ceos of businesses where the decision is do the m a or don't do the m a invest in the factory or don't invest in the factory how do we take the lessons of history and the averages and apply them in those instances can we or or, or can't we really yeah well the late peter bernstein always repeated the phrase about risk. He would say that risk means you don't know what will happen. So if you apply that to the question, Nick, you can't change the fact that you'll only have one outcome. So what you can do is do your homework, understand the base rates, understand the probability, and you can get to an average. Um, The question then is how much risk do you want to take? Because if, the, for example, the more concentrated your portfolio, you have to do more work to understand with a greater degree of confidence what that outcome would be. So hopefully your probability distribution of outcomes gets more narrow because you understand that business, let's say, deeper than you would otherwise if you owned 80 stocks. Is that true? Maybe it is, maybe it's not. Then it comes to risk tolerance. It's not a question of, well, you want to get to the average in that case. It's a question of, do you want to take the risk of being different with the chance of outperforming significantly or underperforming if you get that? if it, You might be right in your process, but if you get the wrong outcome. And so then it goes to the, the combination of the investment results and the investment business, which is very, very tricky. Um, in that same situation, if you run a concentrated portfolio and on average, you're going to be right, what you need is duration. What you need is the number of at-bats to get to your long-term outcomes, which means that the people that are your liability or your clients need to understand very deeply what it is you're doing so that when you have those bad outcomes in the process of getting to a good outcome, they stay the course. We're going to come on to talk a little bit about later and ask a few questions about that, about the kind of clients you have and how that influences behavioral biases and the way people run money and so on and so forth. But I also wanted to bring in a, a, a kind of another point here and, and get your thought on it, which is this this idea of kind of it's something that Annie Duke talks a lot about, which is kind of pot stakes. So people focus very, very heavily on their chance of winning something and sometimes forget about the amount they're going to win if they get it. So, you know, if you've, you've got the bad hand in poker and your chances of winning are only 20 percent, but actually relative to the stake you've put in, there's 15 times your money in the pot. It's a bet you should take. How do the best you know do the best capital allocators at uc do they do, are they able to factor that kind of next level thinking into the way that they do it and you know if they do how is that factored into the best kind of processes yeah i mean i think you have to right it's not just win or win or lose or it's not just in in my favorite baseball analogy it's not just batting average it's batting average and slugging percentage so you do see people thinking in their probability distribution of outcomes, both probability of success and magnitude of success in those outcomes. I think that is a well-articulated pro- you know, out- distribution of outcomes in a probability tree. You can't just have the, the percentage. You have to have the order of magnitude. And then you, you multiply those two numbers together, and that's how you get your, your sort of range of outcomes. So yeah, I think... That's easier to describe in stock picking than it is in other areas, right? If you have a more concentrated portfolio, you're investing in a group of managers, that's tougher um, to weigh that out. Um, But yeah, I think that's an important part of the assessment of a decision process for investment decisions. When you just just coming back a little bit to the the concept of of diversification and, and how many bets you need in order to help the averages play out for you. When you were involved in, you know, managing fund of hedge funds, what was a kind of a big investment for you and what was a kind of smaller investment? How many holdings would you have? Yeah, I don't know how relevant that is broadly. I mean, because we had a particular product and a particular strategy that called for a particular level of diversification. So I wouldn't generalize it I, other than to say that um, what really matters is 
understanding the inputs that get to the outcome that you want numerically, right? So for what we were doing, for example, it was a hedge fund to funds portfolio. We were trying to generate mm -hmm. equity-like returns with substantially less risk. That might've meant call it eight to 10% a year. And in particular, we were doing it with early stage managers, expecting that they had a license to take risk that many late stage managers don't because people expect that they're gonna do better which means they may or not do better, but they yeah. have an opportunity to have more volatility. So we generally wanted more managers than you might in a more mature manager portfolio because we believed the early managers, the early stage managers had an advantage and we didn't want that caught structural advantage to get overridden by a bad mistake of one select one manager yeah, selection. Yeah. So I think our portfolios generally had 35 to 50 managers across every type of hedge fund strategy. And yeah. there weren't wide, very wide position sizes. So you can, you know, you can imagine most position sizes being like just under 2% to three or 4%. I mean, interestingly, that wouldn't necessarily be that that different to many portfolio managers you, you would see running direct equities. But the, the reason I kind of ask this is because it's just a subject where, you know, when you when you group value investors together, let's say as a, as a group for which you are, you know, you neutralize for style effectively and you ask them philosophically about the way they invest and how they invest and all the rest of it. You can pick out things that are very, very similar in terms of their thinking and their philosophy and so on and so forth. But when you then go and look at views on diversification. There are some very different views out there. People who would run very concentrated portfolios and place quite a high emphasis on, as you say, the deepening knowledge base, increasing my hit rate and my accuracy of getting it right. And then those who would say, that's a fool's errand because actually the only thing that approves beyond a certain period of knowledge is your confidence and actually your accuracy doesn't. And therefore, that, you know, statistically they tell you that with weather forecasters. And so actually you should just, uh, you just have to diversify. And, and that's, a, that's why I run, you know, why someone would say I run 80 stocks or whatever it is. And there's just a very, very broad, and I, uh, you know, I'm just always interested to get people's views on, on which end of that spectrum they perhaps subscribe to or, or, or why they wouldn't take a view. Yeah, my take on it is a little bit different from that. I don't think there's a right way. What, what matters far more than the way is the deep authenticity of the person managing the money and whether their style suits their temperament. Interesting. Because the more concentrated manager who's doing it because they think other people want them to take risk is going to is going to be more likely to get shaken out of their positions. And the more diversified manager who's doing it because they think that's what their client wants, but is more risk seeking will get very frustrated doing that. And so you need that alignment between the behavioral temperament of the person and the strategy. Because I, I think it's too hard to know. There is no like 80 stocks is better than 20 stocks, right? Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. There's too much noise. We'll never know the answer to that. So in the allocation side, it is a people-driven business. And one of that's one of those key factors you have to make sure is that the person managing that capital is doing it the way that is best suited for them. I think that that's, that's kind of fascinating. It, I, I'm kind of, going with this a little bit. I don't want to get too off subject. I know we have some questions for you, but just to think a little bit more about in that regard, then you would place quite a high emphasis on the meeting of the manager of the hedge fund of funds or of the investor in order to try and ascertain that yourself. I think on, on our, my question is, you know, on our team, we have a very, we've waxed and waned over a long period of time, whether or not the, the advantages of meeting managers, CEOs, you know, allocators of capital, and the things you get out of that in terms of better understanding their motivations, their drivers, where they're going to allocate capital, whether or not that is big enough to offset the biases that come from meeting people and you turning the, is this a good investment into, do I like them? Um, or would I do that? And I obviously don't run these businesses. So where are you on the spectrum of the, the value add from the personal meeting and, and how, you, how you would genuinely gauge that? I've had long conversations with Annie about just this subject. Uh, Annie believes that all of those face-to-face -face meetings are a farce in terms of signal, <laughs> that there's much more noise, <laughs> including in our <laughs> Well, yeah, especially when we talk about manager selection during COVID. And she says, oh, why do people need to meet other people in the first place? Um, so I, I think that having done thousands of meetings with managers, there's a lot that you can tease out. And you really can distinguish, let's say, the top half from the bottom half, maybe the top quartile from the bottom quartile. It then gets noisy. And mm -hmm. so 
But part of what you're trying to get at going kind of tying into the, the last question is when I was investing, I preferred managers that were concentrated because I was getting my diversification across managers. So I didn't, the style bet that might go into a particular manager strategy that that's what they were pursuing. That wasn't interesting to me. I could create that on my own. So what I wanted to do in those meetings is try to figure out, you know, is the particular manager, I'm, first I'm gonna seek out those managers that are more concentrated. And then I just need to figure out, does it seem like it's suited for them? It's actually not that hard to do, right? There's, yeah. there's orders of magnitude. Like there was a research study that Sagata Ray did. who said, you know, that managers who have Ferraris are much bigger risk takers than managers that have, you know, some other kind of car. Uh, you know, that might be true. Maybe I don't want the guy who has a Ferrari, <laughs> yeah. but there, but you can, it's not that hard when you're doing due diligence on a person to, to figure out a mosaic of who they are. Yeah, really interesting that. I think it's uh, so hard to, you know, we sometimes talk about this concept of 70% of people think they're an above average driver. And, you know, within investing, I, despite we know the averages about how difficult it is to outperform the market, you know, I think point me to the fund manager who thinks he's the one who's the below average. But I think also there tends to be a thing where we, uh, many, many people in investment think they're naturally a great reader of people. And I think it's really interesting, you know, and your book talks a bit about this, about you know, what is it you're looking for when you're trying to actually work out if someone is a great capital allocator and going into these meetings with people rather than saying, oh, I'm interested, I'll see what comes out of this, but with very specific ways to measure what you're going to hear, you know, that kind of Kahneman aspect of I am able subsequently to, to grade what I heard in terms of whether or not it's good or bad and for what reasons and to what level, rather than just, oh, I kind of quite liked that. I think that's a great segue to our next question, which is, you've mentioned in the past that of all the biases that investors face, the one that you believe is the most risky or dangerous is confirmation bias. And, and we were interesting, interested in understanding why would that specific bias be the most risky one? And what can you do to overcome or control that specific bias? I'm not sure. I don't know when I said that. I may have. Um, I think it's the most prevalent. And Michael Mobison says, you know, if, you, if you haven't suffered from confirmation bias, you're not in the investment business. Uh, to the extent that it is um, more pernicious than others, it's, it's because of process. Because confirmation bias leads to overconfidence. So there's another bias. And that could cause you to repeatedly miss things in your investment process. Whereas if you think about risk aversion, that could cause you to repeatedly hold on to names that too long that aren't working, which is fine, but it says nothing about, are you likely to get into names that aren't working? So confirmation bias and overconfidence in particular, if you know someone suffers from that regularly, I think it's very, very hard to imagine that they're going to be successful investors at the end of the day. No, I was going to ask a bit about that because, I mean, obviously, being asked to be an investor is one where there's enormous amounts of accountability on you in terms of making a, a call. And, you know, there is this natural tension between, well, I'm being asked to give my view every day and I buy 40 stocks or I make 40 investments or I make a certain number of investments. And I believe they're all good investments because I wouldn't make them otherwise. But clearly I'm going to be wrong. You know, if if 45% of them are bad investments, I'm a great investor. So that kind of natural tendency towards overconfidence but balancing it up with a kind of degree of conviction, you know, instead of overconfidence. What are, do you know, you know, what are the strategies that you would put in place or the way that people, you know, is it about environment? Is it around about culture? Is it about, you know, physical location? What is it you can put in place to kind of try and mean that you don't have these extremes of bias that are yeah. perhaps problematic? Yeah, there are, there are a couple of things that you can put in place. And again, most of this comes from Annie. This isn't new stuff for me. Uh, but I've, there's some Annie, there's some Michael Mobison, there's some Gary Klein in there. So it starts with what's the structure of the decision-making unit? Um, there's a bunch of research that shows the optimal decision-making unit is four to six people. Right? So if you have 10 people in a room, that's probably not a good idea. If you have one or two, you're probably not getting enough opinions to unearth all the things that you could unearth in your research process. So that doesn't mean there's four to six decision makers. It means there's a decision-making group that's together trying to figure out what the truth is. Um, and so that's an important one. Now within that group, 
you know, we know from research that cognitive diversity is inordinately helpful. Not social diversity, by the way, cognitive diversity. So people who think different or differently. And, and, then, and then within that, the structure of the group matters because if you have a very strong leader, right? The, the research on psychology shows that the person who speaks first can infect other people with their beliefs. So if you have a leader of the team who likes expressing their opinion and then asking for other people's opinions, they're never going to get right the, the true independence of thought from the other members of the team because they're all just instinctively going to want to agree with the leader. So there are ways you could think about organizing those meetings such that maybe the most junior person speaks first and expresses their opinion. They also need to be cognitively safe. So if you disagree with the leader of the group, but you get punished for it implicitly or explicitly, um, they're not going to be willing to express their divergent opinions in the future. So you could set the things up that way. The most actionable thing that I learned from doing the podcast came from a conversation with Gary Klein, who's a cognitive psychologist that created the pre-mortem analysis for fighter pilots. So we all know and do post-mortems. Something happens, the investment didn't work out, you look at it and you study, okay, what happened? What went wrong? How can we improve our process? But what Gary says is, that's great, but the, the pilot's already dead. You know, <laughs> wouldn't it be great if you could do that at the beginning of the process and save their life? So he created, it's really a simple 15 or 20 minute meeting with a very uh, rigorous structure to it that when you're at that point where you're ready to make a decision, so we want to buy this stock, you can gather your decision-making group and go around the room and put yourself in the mind frame of not what do we think might go wrong, but okay, we are now three years from now, and this decision was one of the 45% that failed. Now let's go around the room, each person and say, why did it fail? And you do that before you make the decision. And it's not that it changes the decision, but it, it has this incredible ability to reduce overconfidence and to unearth possible outcomes that might not have come up in the very momentum-driven process. When you're getting, when you're doing more and more work and you're developing your confirmation and starting to encounter confirmation bias, it's very easy to just let that freight train roll. And so the question is, how do you get all of these people that are on your team to be able to think a little bit differently about what might go wrong and just allow that to enter into your decision process. And that's proven very, very effective at making better decisions. You mentioned something really interesting there about, uh, and you touched on it a couple of times about cognitive diversity, not, not just perceived or social diversity, but genuine cognitive diversity. And I think that's something I wanted to kind of ask you about. Diversity can be something that, you know, people are, people think about quotas or see it in different ways, but how would you, how do you get genuine cognitive diversity? How do you interview for it? How do you understand it? How do you get that into your teams? Yeah. Some ways are easy, right? You want people that come from very different backgrounds. They, you know, social diversity is a very, is probably highly correlated with cognitive diversity. Okay. People from different races yeah, yeah. and genders often have very different experiences in their life, but it's not what you want, right? You, you, you want cognitive diversity. Um, there are things like personality tests, right? Introverts and extroverts think differently. Uh, if you took a Myers-Briggs test, the, the, each of the four factors indicate something where people will think and process information differently. Um, Michael talks about the rationality quotient, which is, so the hardest part about true cognitive diversity is if you have a bunch of people that naturally think differently from each other, they're probably not gonna agree very much and they might not get along very well. So how do you have both cognitive diversity and a functioning team? And one of the vectors of that is something called the rationality quotient. And again, it's another one of these tests you could take, but people who are highly rational in their beliefs are very good in decision-making groups because they're, they're able to express their views and have different views, but not immediately dismiss someone else's view because of their own biases. It feels like um, the thing that immediately pops into my mind a little bit is Bridgewater, where they've taken, you know, Ray Dalio has taken that to an extreme level in terms of the, you know, the rules that are put in place, the interactions, the challenge, and then the baseball cards around who is the expert to talk about what and the weight of their view. 
do you have a kind of you know when you look at a structure like that's been put in place which has clearly been thought about incredibly deeply and in its field and over the period that we've looked at it has been successful you, you know objectively we could probably say around what are the strengths and weaknesses of going to that kind of an extremer position I guess yeah I haven't been inside of Bridgewater I've know a bunch of people who've worked there and there are pluses and minuses and you know we hear all kinds of different things about that particular culture what I would say from from what I know is that getting to authentic truth for any one of us individually is not easy. Mm. Our lives are filled of, of micro lies that we tell, not for to, to be mean or anything, but in fact, it's just the opposite, right? We, we tell little micro lies to people in our family so they don't get upset on something that, you know, will upset them and doesn't matter. And so we're almost conditioned in a lot of ways to get along. And that leads us to not unearthing what is deeply true if it disagrees with other people. So that whole concept of radical transparency makes a lot of sense to me. How you implement it and whether they do it well, I don't know a whole lot about. But the concept of how do you figure out what you really believe and that you can express that about a stock to the people on your team because you can imagine we've all been in these situations where we have a little bit of a different opinion from the person on our team across the table. And for whatever reason, we just don't speak up. And that's what you're trying to avoid in making good decisions. My wife's made it very clear I'm radically transparent enough. <laughs> I don't think I need to get any more. Um, you'd have to ask the other members of the team about it in a work context. Um, I'm, I'm kind of, I am conscious of time, but we've, there's a few more questions that we wanted to ask you about. And, and one in particular was around origins of capital and how that affects behaviors and the way managers affect, you know, whether it's permanent capital or retail oriented money, the kinds of investors that are sat above you or beside you in a partnership, whatever it is, and how as a manager, you can cope with that, put in place structures to deal with that, to allow, give yourself the best opportunity to, to be successful. As a concept or as a framework, the closer you are to actually owning the capital, the fewer layers of confusing decision makers you have along the way. So we've just gone through this whole thing about how hard it is to make a good decision. Well, imagine you're a money manager, you have a client, that client has a consultant, the consultant goes to an investment committee, the investment committee reports to a board. And by the time you're at the board, who's filled with you know, a very well-meaning fireman, a teacher who doesn't really understand what a stock is, what are the chances that they're going to make a thoughtful decision all the way down to the decision you're making when you're underperforming for a short period of time? <laughs> so the different pools as a starting point, the closer someone is to actually owning the capital, the better chance they have of making, let's call it a rational decision. doesn't mean it's going to work out, but a rational decision. Within that, most of the time in the institutional world, there are people who are speaking for the pools of capital. So yes, an endowment or a foundation generally is one pool of capital and the investment office is one client. But it turns out even in that decision-making unit, often the chief investment officer has to report to a committee. And sometimes that committee is very opaque to the money manager. And sometimes the relationship between the chief investment officer and the committee is highly functioning and other times it's not. And so as a money manager, you can't control those aspects of the process. The only thing you can control is a consistent and repeated communication of what it is you're trying to do and set expectations, particularly downside expectations for what is within the realm of normalcy. Because the only thing you can do um, when you're having a tough period of time and everybody does in the path to success in investing, the only thing you can do is have prepared ahead of time to buy yourself more time. Because your clients will get shaken out when you're underperforming 100% of the time. Maybe not all of them, but that's how this business works. And so that means a bunch of things. It means the first is, I've been, I've been citing one of my favorite quotes from the show. This comes from Andy Golden at Princeton, who I'd worked with at Yale, which is this, the quote is, to finish first, you first have to finish. So when it comes to growth and value and all these facts, the problem is if you're wrong for too long, you won't be in the game to win, even if you're right over a long period of time. And that is the reality of the asset management business. The reality of the asset management business isn't where I started my career. It's the reality for Yale, but for nobody else, where you can ride through all of that because they have an incredibly highly functioning governance structure and they actually invest with a long time horizon. Everybody wants to invest with a long time horizon, but they're serving and answering to someone else who may not be and is likely to not be perfectly aligned with their thinking. 
It, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, the, the, the expression that popped into my head there was this concept of you don't have to outrun the bear, you just have to outrun everyone else. And it reminded me of a note, a recently written note by Jeremy Grantham, you know, waiting for the last dance. And he was talking a bit about this, about, you know, his experience of GMO and, and Phillips and Drew and the 2000 tech bubble and, and, and that concept of keeping yourself in the game and keeping your clients in it with you. Because, you know, we all know mean reversion is incredibly powerful and come back to where we kind of started a little bit on valuations and these bets coming right over time on average. But the savagery of the range of possible outcomes is is potentially much worse and, and often much worse than you can perhaps, you know, your clients are willing to accept at the very start. You know, so trying to keep them in it because that's how you make these long-term returns. And there is a, a close correlation between how bad it gets and how well you do eventually. So it's kind of fascinating. So there is something that you have mentioned in this session and you cover in your book as well, which is that institutional investors will need to generate nominal returns in the range of 6 to 8% per year in the future to cover their expenses. I was wondering if this number has changed given what has happened in 2020 in the sense that some of the fundamentals in these institutions might be highly uncertain. So for instance, an endowment in the context of what universities are facing Will the students come back on campus or will the tuition fees remain unchanged? In that context, these CIOs are dealing with a lot of uncertainty and making a lot of decisions in a market where most asset classes are looking stodgy. How do they, how do they think about that? And how do they think about absolute versus relative returns, given that the range of 6 to 8% is an absolute target? Yeah. Um, so these are really interesting questions. We don't know the answer yet. You know, we don't know what the revenues of universities look like 10 years from now if the population decides that virtual learning is just as valuable as in-class learning. We just don't know. Hospitals were dealing with it last year. With the wave of, of um, managing COVID patients meant that there was this massive deferral of high profit margin elective surgeries. So we saw this across the board. You saw it with foundations who were funding grantees to international locations that couldn't travel there. What do they do? Most of that probably washes out in the in the overtime phenomenon. We probably go back to something that looks quote unquote normal, at least economically, for these institutions. So then they really have to deal with that bridge period. And, and that for a really long-term pool of capital, nothing much changes. The relative versus absolute is an interesting question, right? The money management community views things in a relative lens. But ultimately, the purpose of the capital for all of these places is to spend a certain amount of money. They have a budget. A university has an operating budget. And as we learned in 2008, the operating budget doesn't shrink so quickly. It's a fair amount of fixed cost, even if the asset side does. And now you're spending a fixed percentage of an asset pool that you can't compound in the future because it's just dipped. So it's, it's an interesting blend. You see that blend uh, across all of investing. So in these multi-asset class pools... When someone invests in a private equity fund, for example, they make a nominal dollar commitment, but their capital base, the denominator in the equation of their position size is a variable number. So what happens when there's a, a quick shock to publicly listed capital markets and all of a sudden the commitment size is oversized relative to what they had intended when it was smaller. And so there are all of these dynamics that sort of the, the, the mix of fixed and variable of relative and absolute that pervade asset management. And so it's never one or the other. And one thing that it's um, very in vogue at the moment is the approach to ESG and how to incorporate ESG into the investment process or philosophies. And we were wondering what, what are your views on, on how many of those institutions are thinking about ESG long-term? Yeah, so it's it's early innings of something that's clearly a secular trend, the secular trend to have investment decisions consider what's good for the environment, what's good for society, in a way that it wasn't, you know, as recently as say three years ago. The first challenge of that is you have a money management industry who knows that's true and therefore tries to put products to address it immediately. Some of which, yeah, you know, all of which maybe well-intentioned, but may not yet be well thought out. It's just trying to capture dollars. And you have uh, an asset owner community who doesn't really know yet what that means. 
So we know we'd like environmentally friendly companies or practices more than others, but it's if in any one company you look at, it's just not that simple. So we're still at the stage of the capital markets needing to figure out what good means in, in, all, in all of these lenses and what are the trade-offs. So imagine, ESG is a funny one, imagine a really environmentally friendly company that's run solely for the interests of the CEOs and not the shareholders. Great E, bad G. Where does that fit in ESG, right? And so there, it's it's so it's not binary, and that's and it'll take some time. But we will see eventually. We will see benchmarks is where it always starts. We'll see some benchmarks that people generally agree are in the right direction. Maybe E S and G get broken down into E S and G. I, I don't know how it'll all play out, um, but it is something that is on everyone's mind in every conversation in the asset owner community. And so it will evolve, but we're still in the early innings of what that means and what it looks like. That's fascinating. Ted, we're coming to the end of our session and we have always asked our guests two questions. One is for a book recommendation. And, and the second one is if you can share with us a decision that you've made or seen others make where the outcome was bad and you could identify that due to bad process and not bad luck. Sure. Well, the first one's really easy. I, I can't, I've been told I can't, I, I should be doing this even though I haven't, but people should read my book. I mean, it's really good. <laughs> I don't usually do that, but it's, it's good. I, like, I think it's good. good, work, I think, good so, I, you know, there, there are so many books you could read. The, the other one I, I tend to say first is I absolutely love Morgan Housel's new book, The Psychology of Money. that came out earlier this year. That's got time-tested investment lessons with just tremendous anecdotes. Um, and then if those two don't work, I wrote another book a couple of years ago that I don't like quite as much, but a lot of people in the industry have liked. So you want to start a hedge fund. So there are the books, uh, on decisions in 2005, 2006, we had a lot of money coming into our fund and everybody knows size is the enemy of performance. And that's great. And that, that's what it shows in the out, the output. But the question is, what is, what does that look like in a process? And so what happened for us, we were seeding managers as part of what we wanted to do. And there was a certain percentage of our funds that we were supposed to allocate to those types of investments. But the money in those years was coming in too fast to find good ones. And I have one particular manager in my mind that we backed. And with the normal amount of due diligence, we never would have gone near but we rushed the decision because we were putting money out and lo and behold, you know, it didn't go, it didn't go terribly, but it didn't go particularly well. And it was entirely because the, the set of circumstances in that moment of time of having too much capital and feeling like putting the pressure, the feeling the pressure of putting that capital to work, led us to make a decision too quickly when there's a lot more information we could have gathered before making that decision that would have easily rendered that a different decision. Um, that's a mistake I never made again since because it's easily rectifiable. Well, that's super interesting. Ted, thank you very much for your time. This was fascinating. Well, thanks, Nick, thanks so, thanks so much for having me. It's great fun. Yeah.